Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Down. Before I introduce my guest, Lionel Shriver, just a really quick reminder that we have an Unspeakeasy retreat coming up in June in Austin, Texas. The Minneapolis retreat is going on right now as we speak this week, but the next one will be June 24th and 25th. That is a weekend daytime only retreat. And you can go to theunspeakeasy.com to find out about that. That will probably be the last one until next fall. We are going to have a fancy luxury retreat in the Poconos, October 23rd through 26th. You can find out about that. You can also go to the online community and join that. It's much more affordable than a retreat, and it's actually awesome. So everything is to be found at theunspeakeasy.com. And as I think I mentioned last week, if you are a man and you're feeling left out, because this is a women's only venture at this point, the thing you can do is support us so we can grow and offer Unspeakeasy for all events, because that is uh, something I would like to do down the road. Okay. My returning guest is author Lionel Shriver. Lionel was last here about two years ago talking about her novel, Should We Stay or Should We Go?, which took a really dark and funny look at end-of-life options uh, by considering a dozen parallel universes for a couple who, in an effort to avoid prolonged and undignified demises, planned to kill themselves when they turned 80. Lionel is best known for her novels. She's published, I think, close to 20 of them, including the prize-winning, best-selling We Need to Talk About Kevin, which was told from the point of view of a mother whose young son carries out a school massacre. Lionel is here this week to talk about her most recent book, which is not a novel. It's called Abominations. It's a collection of her writings from outlets like The Spectator, The Guardian, and The Wall Street Journal. It contains some previously unpublished pieces and also some speeches and other public addresses, including a eulogy for her brother. Lionel is perhaps the consummate thought criminal. For instance, she supported Brexit. She's an American who lives mostly in the UK. And in this conversation, we talk about how she came to assume this mantle, what frustrates her the most about culture war discourse, the state of the literary arts, the new gender movement. She also stays overtime for paying subscribers to talk about my favorite subject after cancel culture, end of life. So uh, if you're not a paying subscriber already, Go to megandown.substack.com and subscribe and hear that bonus content. In the meantime, here is my conversation with Lionel Shriver. Lionel Shriver, welcome back to The Unspeakable. It's a pleasure. You were last here in June 2021. I can't believe it's been almost two years. Talking about your novel, Should We Stay or Should We Go? Last fall, you published Abominations, Selected essays from a career of courting self-destruction. <laughs> Must have worked because here you are on this podcast. It's where people go when they've self-destructed. You're here because I always love talking with you. And also because several listeners have requested you. They want to hear your thoughts about the current state of things. Uh, so I thought we would talk about sort of culture war stuff. Uh, but I also want to talk about the novel and anything else. So yeah, why don't we just uh, 
get right to it. What has uh, life been like for you? And what have you been thinking about over the last two years? Uh, Well, of course, uh, during COVID, I thought about COVID policy. I don't exactly miss those days. (laughs) (laughs) But they were so relaxing and there was so few distractions. I found that whole experience very upsetting politically. I I thought that the the whole lockdown thing and all the little regulations that came with it, the vaccine mandates, et cetera, exposed the pretensions of our democratic system as a thin veneer beneath which worked uh, absolute power in the same way that all governments express absolute power. And our rights can be tossed aside for whatever reason, really, at a moment's notice. And uh, I, I, th- I feel profoundly changed. I am much more cynical, and I'm tempted to call it more paranoid, but it's justified fear. So I'm not sure that qualifies as paranoia. Okay, well, you were pretty cynical to begin with, so that's yeah. I couldn't something. afford this. <laughs> so okay, so we spoke in June 2021, so that would have been like a year after the lockdowns started. So I'm trying to remember what the it, that was kind of when everybody was scrambling around trying to get a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And then and kind of lockdowns were kind of intermittent or were they were they over well, uh in the uk where yeah. i spent most of covid uh they were worse than intermittent okay so when you you experience most of this as uh, a person living in the uk you are an american do you have any sense of like what the differences were because like a lot of the culture war stuff it often boils down to americans uh american liberals being obsessed with the political right and obviously now Donald Trump and defining themselves in opposition to the political right. Obviously, there's a version of that in the UK. There's there's Brexit. But did you feel that the situation was as polarizing and kind of toxic, to use an overused word, in the UK as it was in the US? Well, I guess the best parallel is Brexit. And I would qualify it as nearly as polarizing, people lost their minds. I would say in particular on the Remainer side that it became deeply personal, very emotional, which is astonishing considering that we were talking about membership of a an economic trade bloc. You just mm-hmm. you just wouldn't <laughs> think that it would arouse the passions. Uh, but it did. And uh, it also aroused a lot of contempt. It all went one way. Who was contemptuous of whom? I did support Brexit. I was, I was perfectly capable of of defending membership of the European Union. I, it's not as if I couldn't see there was a good case for it, especially economically. Uh, but uh, I didn't. I still don't uh, care for the. Touch and feel of the organization. It's condescending, uh, very top down, anti democratic by design, full of time servers who are justifying their existences by passing still more regulations. 
I thought Britain would be okay outside the bloc. So far, it's survived. It hasn't taken advantage of its independence remotely. But it was an interesting era to live through here just because it did become so emotional. And I was quite the odd person out because all my friends were Remainers. And I live in London, and it's just similar to what happens in the States. Is most of my friends are liberals. You know, they're Democrats. I am too, by default, sort of, since what's the choice? <laughs> but I... I I find myself often in the position of, of being around people with whom I fundamentally disagree and they find me a little peculiar. There are certain subjects we don't talk about. Uh, and I, and I have lost friends over politics, which if you're on the wrong side of history, then that's that's a commonplace experience. And I mean, but you have always been pretty counterintuitive thinker. You've never apologized for your opinions. You've, you know, in your novels, uh, you know, occasionally rubbed people the wrong way. But this is like a, a next level kind of thing. And so I'm curious, now that you write, you write for The Spectator, you're writing a lot of opinion journalism, you're a cultural critic, do you find yourself sort of leaning into this contrarian, uh, so to speak, sort of standpoint, persona, whatever you want to call it, more than in the past? Well, I think the times have changed, and and that has made me more inclined to take up the battle rather than retire into my already you know, novel writing life and decide it's all this stuff doesn't pertain to me and it's a, everyone else's problem. And I, I do think that especially about 2015 onwards, and of course there are many antecedents uh, go back several years, but it really went nuts about 2015. Yeah. It's uh it's important. Now, I, I've gone back and forth on this. I sometimes wonder whether I am wasting my time on trivia, that this is passing politics. It will, it will eventually fade. Maybe no one will even remember it. And I will have not written as many books as I might have. And maybe even in the books themselves, I'm getting waylaid by uh, temporary insanity. Uh, where, and I should be caring about the, the big issues of, you know, what are they? Yeah, what are the big issues? I'm waiting for you to finish death. that sentence. I write enough about death already. Yeah, we're going to get to that. <laughs> Aging, children. What are we here for? I don't know. Uh, but the truth is that uh, in the social context, we could get bigger issues than we're dealing with right now. Because once I've gone through this whole questioning of myself, I come round to the view that what's at stake right now 
is enormous and uh you know no, nothing less than the survival of western civilization as i understand it i don't think that's a small matter uh clearly freedom of speech is no longer valued especially by younger people we're dealing with a fanatical and authoritarian ideology which does nothing but get nuttier uh and more severe i can't stand the whole texture of this what we've started calling wokery uh if nothing else it's it's oppressively humorless as, as well as just oppressive and it couldn't be more antithetical to my sensibility it's so joyless it's obsessed with a version of virtue that i reject it's full of rigidity it's not very smart it's full of contradictions it's monotonous um it turns people into little automatons it has no respect for language it's obsessed with language but but actually has no regard for language and mutilates language and in a very prescriptive way so that they they not only want you to write and speak badly but themselves they want to write and speak badly but they want want to make sure that everyone else writes and speaks badly you know the the whole feel is very maoist if not stalinist uh and these people are so historically illiterate that when you throw those adjectives at them they have they're not their feelings aren't hurt because they don't know they don't really know what you're talking about right so okay i want to drill down on this who do you mean when you say these people because everything that you've just described i also feel but i also struggle because i'm thinking okay maybe i'm just exaggerating this or maybe i'm spending too much time on twitter and the I'm seeing disproportionate amounts of this. It's not really representative. It's not. It's not just Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Reading, You're not on social media, and you still feel this. So that's yeah, something. I'm reading this stuff all the time, and you need to look no further than the president of the United States, who spouts the same nonsense. You know his the sole criterion. As far as I could tell, when he was appointing his staff and his cabinet, uh, was what the, what was their group membership, and they bragged about it. You never learned anything about these people and ha- what qualified them for their jobs, aside from the fact that they were black or they they were gay or. Uh, no, not even gay. Were, I don't think that gets you very far. Oh, gay, gay definitely doesn't get you very far. In fact, I've really enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> You're not they're, gay. What what do you well, you're, not, you're enjoying no, this I, as a straight person? They, yeah. You know, there used to be such a thing as gay privilege, right? And this is especially where white gay males. Wait, there was gay privilege. Wait, wait, wait. You mean during the gay rights movement or bef- the gay oh, yeah. privilege? Yeah. Because and it, you got identity points for being gay. Oh, I see. Okay. Taken away. Right. Okay. You know, you're right. You're just two inches above the bottom. Okay, so it's a pr- inverse privilege. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's like you lost your merit badge. <laughs> just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the Biden thing is uh, 
it's it's maddening because he is he seems to be spouting things that he doesn't even know what he's saying. It's almost like a, a trans transliteration. Like he's just sort of phonetically sounding out words that he doesn't know the meanings to. And sometimes I think it it's actually maybe his wife, uh, Doctor Jill Biden. Well, they're all parroting someone else. Yeah. There's hardly yeah. anyone out there who has originated anything. So Biden's just like it, everybody. And he, he dutifully repeats what he's supposed to. And, you know, he believes that biological men should be able to compete in sports against women. Well, he doesn't believe it. I mean, who well, knows what, what he actually it? believes. But right. He's just, I don't think he... He's is it been, an absence of belief? Yeah, he's been handed copy and he believes that whoever is giving him the text knows what well, they're he's, doing. He's very obedient. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what Obama would have been like in this situation. Because it's good, good question, because he just missed the era right. of all this crap. And I can't call that. I can't call that. I feel that he's a more sensible person, and I feel that he's someone who is more capable of independent thought. But who knows? Under pressure, maybe yeah. maybe he'd get with the program. He'd disappoint me, but that's not impossible. I feel like he would try to play it both ways because, yeah, he definitely sees he calls bullshit. I mean, he does now, not enough in my opinion, but he also knew how to play the identity card when he needed to. Yes. Although one of the things I liked about him to begin with was that his inclination was to play the identity card by deliberately not playing it. If you can follow that. Right. Which was smart. And the one thing you always, you could always say about that guy is he's canny. Right. Okay, but let's go back to who is they, because, uh, all right, it's not just Twitter. Um, when we talk about this language being policed, I, I, the thing is that the the people who don't see things the way we do will say, what exactly are you objecting to? How is it hurting you? If certain people want to speak a certain way, nobody is forcing you to say anything or do anything. Name one person who's actually been uh, canceled uh, for something that, you know, in, in, a, in a truly life-ruining way. And my answer to that question is, you can't name any of those people because they've been canceled. They've been disappeared, you know? <laughs> well, besides certain high-profile people, like, I mean, grab a name, Woody Allen, I think what's more concerning is the number of ordinary people that you don't hear about right? who are losing their jobs because they said something a little bit off, just yeah. some tiny thing in the workplace, and that's enough, and they're out of here. And there's there's no real record of those people. Well, that's what I mean. Right. So people will say, oh, look at Louis C.K., Look at all these celebrities who've made a comeback. Uh, they still have their audience. They still have their podcast audience, their alternative Substack audience, whatever it is. There's obviously being canceled can be good for your career. And I always want to say for every one of those people, there are hundreds of normal people who you can't name because they have 
literally been disappeared. And I think that that's very hard for a lot of people to remember. I'm not even going to say get their minds around, but it's almost like it doesn't occur to them. But again, I want to figure out like who is driving this because it always gets taken back to this is what's being taught on the college campuses and it's a certain generational cohort of professors and they educate these kids and then the kids graduate and they infiltrate newsrooms and cultural institutions and various corridors of power. Like, do you have any sort of diagnosis or can you point to like the source? I've been asked this before and I come up with different answers. I do think an awful lot of this dumb shit started out in the 1960s and it snowballed. So basically my own generation is partially responsible for where we ended up. A lot of the uh, negativity uh, about Western civilization, the obsession with the wrongs of the past, the gleeful mea culpa, that started in the 60s. I mean, even the stuff about obsessing over slavery, that was, that was big when I was growing up. And, you know, the slaughter of the Native Americans or whatever we're supposed to call them now. You know, that hanky-twisting, rather fruitlessly guilty anti-Americanism was huge in the 60s and 70s, and it never went away. You know, I think other people who are better schooled have traced some of this stuff back to particular texts. I think it's always hard to identify when a movement develops momentum, what it was, what really triggered it. I mean, how did the French Revolution happen? How did Mao come to power? How did all these things happen? Well, I'm a crap historian, so I can't answer any of those questions. <laughs> but I think it's there's there's something mysterious about it. And there's definitely something mysterious about this. I mean, I can grab at explanations. I can blame my generation of let it all hang out folks. Or you can trace the development of the ideology in the universities. Somehow it doesn't get us anywhere. I mean, even if we could pinpoint exactly where this came from, it doesn't make it go away. Yeah. Okay, so I'm hearing this and I'm thinking that there was obviously good that came out of acknowledging that the Native Americans were slaughtered. So before the 60s, we had a culture, at least, you know, post-agricultural era that was dominated by white men. So we can't just live in that state indefinitely. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is where I get really tired of having to caveat things, right? Of course, slavery was was a moral atrocity. Of course, the slaughter of the Indians was a grotesque abuse of human rights and a tragic destruction of a civilization. And 
at a certain point, don't you just want this stuff to go without saying? Yes. Well, I think you and I have discussed there should be like a shortcut key on the computer that would, you know, you just go control all four. And yeah. it says, um, of course, you know, rape and sexual assault is terrible and should never be tolerated. <laughs> that said, and then you can go and type your sentence. <laughs> right. No, but I'm not I'm not talking about caveats so much as like what would have been a way to split the difference or like, you know, obviously we can't live in a world where we don't acknowledge that certain things have gone on and that there are power differentials that might require some form of reparations or at least awareness. But like, I wonder sometimes if we just sort of lack the sophistication to to entertain these two concepts at once. Like we do have to acknowledge these things and we have to try to make things better for people, but we also can't just destroy everything. We can't just burn it all down. And maybe well, there, that's just too big of an ask. Well, there's just no middle ground on this stuff. I right. Mean, so what you're describing is a middle ground. And that's what's vanished. Yeah, and it's so been demonized. You either, you Centrist either is a bad person. Critical yeah. race theory and want it taught in some form to eight-year-olds um, or you're a right-wing white supremacist. And I that's why what happens is liberals, the classical liberals, get lost in the conversation. Because I've noticed, you know, this um, newsletter Persuasion? Yes, of course. I think I'm a member of Persuasion. Right. I'm fine with it. But I find I deprioritize reading it. And that's because it's too mild. This is what I want to understand, and I think you're a great person to talk to about this, is that the vast majority of people hate this stuff as much as we do. And everybody's kind of pretending to go along with this tiny, very vocal minority. And it's really like an emperor's new clothes situation. And I ask myself every day if this is sustainable, and I have to think it's not. I keep thinking that this is on its way out the door. But you sound like you think that we're stuck with this for a while. Of course, I have no way of knowing. And I don't want us to be stuck with it. And I do everything within my power to make it go away. So and if I were really defeatist about it, I wouldn't do everything in my power. I would go read a book. I, I I would think about anything else. I'd read the sports pages or something. But I don't think we can count on it being as much of a flash in the pan as it should have been. After all, it's a lot of it's a lot of the elements of its platform are goofy. Even this transgenderism thing is is in some ways goofy. In some ways, yes. I think that's fair to say. So it should be it should have been over by now. And it isn't. So we can't trust that it will go away, it will just it will collapse from the weight of its own contradictions. That's a nice idea. I think one of the reasons that many other people enjoyed the piece about the infighting in very woked out organizations that basically they're destroying one another. Oh yeah. About the nonprofit sector. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And that's great. I mean, I love, I love the idea of, of they're just tearing each other apart until there's nothing left. 
you know, like tigers going around in circle until they turn to butter. But I don't think that we can necessarily trust that they will off themselves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, It's it's gone so deep now in so many different institutions and you know museums and all the whole charity non-governmental organization thing and not just in universities but it's it's clearly infected teaching colleges oh yeah which means that it's being taught to children and uh, when something's so deep-rooted, I don't think it's easy to rip up. There are a lot of people who are very invested in this and making a lot of money off of it. Right. Okay, well, here's something that comes up uh, on my other podcast that I do with Sarah Hader. And Sarah was very interested in that in that piece you just cited as well, because she's from the nonprofit world. We think or we have asked if women are driving this thing. So many of these institutions, education, nonprofits, cultural institutions, publishing, they are controlled by liberal white women. Do you think that women drive cancel culture? I think that's a fair thesis. I did a column for The Spectator very recently about the state of publishing. And the one thing I said in that column that was going out on a limb was to say, you know, part of the problem here is that publishing is now controlled by women. And publishing is is conformist, it's cowardly, it's controlled by the same group think. And I pointed out that, you know, while it's, you know, it's not fair to tar us all with the same brush, broadly speaking, as a group, women are more inclined to try to please. They're more risk averse. They want everyone to like them. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes them sitting ducks for this woke shit. Yeah, I agree. Because it's all about parading how good you are. Yep. (laughs) This is very female. I know. And the, the kind of the backstabbing, the passive aggressive kind of um, betrayals, that's very cancel culture, right? It's never right to your face. It's always behind your back. That's right. Yeah. It's so hard to talk about. This is the one thing that could drive me to become transgender. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I think transgender. No, I think, see, this is what I was about to say, because it's women, but it's also sort of some, you know, marginalized uh, people from marginalized groups. The men, and I'm really, I might get myself in trouble even with my own audience here, but let me just sort of tease this out. Like a lot of the men that I see involved in Twitter pylons, that sort of thing, are maybe have like a special gender identity they're they're like non-binary they're kind of i don't want to there there's a lot of gay men doing that but also a lot of gay men who won't do that i don't know it's very sort of female and female adjacent mm. let's put it that way i very rarely see 
straight men doing it. Although, you know what? Let me think. No, there's a there's a category of straight guy that does this. <laughs> like, you know, really ensconced in kind of, you know, lefty media spaces. Um, I mean, Freddie DeBoer, I think, uh, famously wrote a Substack where he like the 10 worst men in media that that do this kind of thing. And I think most of them were straight. So maybe I need to fine tune my theory a little bit. But yeah, there is something very female about it. But the culture itself has become very female, right? Yes. Less comfortable with competition. Less comfortable with the living in a world where there are losers. So, you know, this came in a while ago that everybody gets a blue ribbon thing. What I've been paying attention to lately is increasingly just this absolute refusal to make any kind of judgment, which is also this kind of manic fairness. So... (laughs) I mean, I was listening to the PBS News Hour. I think it was last week, and uh, they had somebody on talking about, you know, fentanyl and what have you. And what's the expression he used over and over again? It was um, uh, substance use disorder. Right. Right. That was it. Right. Right. People with substance use disorder. And he said this over and over again. I mean, it was so monotonous. But by the end, even he couldn't keep it up. And he finally used the shorthand addicts, uh-huh. which you're not supposed to say. <laughs> because addicts is there, it's there's just this little suggestion about the word addict that maybe you shouldn't be one. Like it's not the best possible thing to be. And I just, this is across the board. I mean, I saw an advert earlier this week on TV was uh, for a documentary which espousing the view that all bodies are beautiful. Right? See what I mean? This weird neutrality. By the way, yeah. all bodies are not yeah. beautiful. I'm sorry if your listeners can't handle it. Uh, <laughs> That's why this is an audio only podcast. Yeah. Um and what's interesting ab- about a statement like that is that it eliminates the very concept of beauty. And in this new level neutrality where you don't say anything bad about anything or anybody and we're all the same, it's just fantastically flattening of you know, the world. It's uh, first off, it's denying reality, which right woke world is very big on. But it's there's just now this discomfort. Everyone should be the same. Everyone should be as good as everyone else. Everyone should have the same qualities. There is nothing. Nobody ever does anything bad or is anything bad. Of uh, so. By the way, we also eliminate uh, having to take any responsibility for your actions. Right. Well, you can do things bad if you're in power. If you're a white man, you do things bad. Let's be clear. Yes. Right. But there's everyone else. And they can do, seemingly can do no wrong. 
I think that you're tending, one is tending to be enthusiastic about an ethos where everyone is made to be the same. If, should we instead have a world where people are in competition with one another and therefore there are losers, you're more inclined to fear the world of competition if you're afraid you're going to be one of the losers. And I'm afraid that that is very female. I remember mm. back in um, 2005 when I was up for uh, the Orange Prize in the UK, the other uh, people on the shortlist, it was a woman's prize, so the, they were all women. And aside from me, they were all getting together and agreeing that whoever won, they would split up the prize money equally among themselves. What? I kid you not. <laughs> These were the 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 finalists just yes. on their own deciding yes. this. It was it I That's was like you can't even make that up. That's like as out of some kind of satire. That's like out of a Portlandia or something. Well I was I was interested in the fact that they didn't even approach me about the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have to give them some credit for being astute on that point. But that's that's what I'm talking about. Well, it's a good and thing you, you won. To, you come to that arrangement yeah. because you think you're not going to win. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so let's, you, let's talk about this a little more. So, like, you've written about the gender thing. We've, I've talked a lot about it on this podcast, and so I don't really want to talk about it in a in a super general way, but you've written about how you are kind of non-binary yourself. Uh, you have a male name. It's not your given name. You took it on later in life. Um, you're not a girly girl. You have a fairly masculine kind of outlook and sensibility. And yet you're, and perhaps that makes you even more skeptical of uh, what's going on with the, the gender movement. So, so talk about how you're feeling about that these days. I am. I mean, everything you said about me is correct. I was a tomboy. I occasionally dress up like a girl. <laughs> and occasionally, wait, in the present tense or in the past? In the present. Okay. And have in the past. <laughs> well, I've seen you've worn a tennis. You've been wearing tennis outfits whenever we've met. So yeah, I but I mean, more counts. like actually wear a dress. Okay. All right. So I can play that role, and it's kind of fun, though it always has an element of theater to it to me. I feel always feel like a slightly different person in a dress. But that's okay. It's fun. And maybe I understand why some men would want to play, play dress up in that same way. And I don't care. They're welcome to it. But I don't feel the need for a label, for one thing. I don't understand why everybody has to have something that they are. We didn't even have to say someone was a woman because it was obvious. But they had a slight masculine bearing. Right. And Well, we had personality traits. Yeah. And we tastes. had personality traits. Tastes. You didn't have to ha you didn't have to call it anything. I mean, first off, I I know there's some research behind it, and we all instinctively recognize these traits that are supposed to be more masculine or more feminine. 
that's what actually what made it possible for us to have our previous conversation about women taking over and what it means means so i accept that in the general there is this continuum but the intersection between men and women is enormous and the variation within the sexes is much greater than the variation between the sexes and i'm comfortable with all of this i like variation i am happy for everyone to be different but this isn't really about being different this is what one of the things that bugs me about it oh there are 100 genders and but if you really are different if you really are your own person you don't need to find some category to jump into and label yourself with but I, the impulse is not individualistic. It's not an embrace of your own personality. It's trying to find a bunch of people who are exactly like you so you can blend in with them. It's completely foreign to me. I mean, it reminds me of when I was a kid and we we moved a lot when I was younger. I went to uh, several different elementary schools. And I remember like wanting to be in the Girl Scouts so, so, so badly, not because I had any interest in what the Girl Scouts did, but because I wanted to wear the uniform and I wanted to have, <laughs> I wanted to have the oh, same the uniform crap. as the other girl. I know. And then it was the same thing with like cheerleading. Like I didn't want to be a cheerleader and didn't care, but like I just, because I was always new and on the outside, I just had this like absolutely visceral longing to have the same uniform as other girls. And I feel like it's, I can smell that kind of need and desire and anxiety in the, in some of the gender stuff. It's just wanting to be affiliated. Yeah. I have to say that's something that I have not commonly experienced. I am. Yeah. Well, it was only because when it was only when I was like new to the school, (laughs) it was very much when I was like acutely an outsider. Actually, one of the things that's been interesting for me in the whole anti-woke period is that I I now have colleagues in a way that I didn't used to. And I guess it's a way, there's a way in which I belong to a group. It's not (laughs) normal for me, but just little by little, I've accumulated other people. They're almost all men. Oh. So you're not talking about like the heterodox crowd. You're not talking about the all the the, the Harper's Letter signatories and the podcasters and the substackers. Well, I'm talking about mostly that. in the UK. Okay, and I know a lot of these people personally, and there is an increasingly a, a sense of clubbiness. <laughs> Does that bother you? I mean, I would say you can't um, fight tribalism with a tribe, or you shouldn't. I have my eye on it. Yeah. So uh, it's been such a lonely business for most of this period that to feel as if I have a little bit of companionship, ideological companionship, uh, is is a relief. And because you know the people who attack folks like you and me are quite shrill and and vocal. It's it's nice to feel a little bit of support to encounter actual fans or fellow writers. Yeah. By the way, not only they're almost all male, but they're all also nonfiction writers. 
and so, you know, it's nice not to feel completely lonely. And that makes you feel a little less insane. You're not part of the the turf island phenomenon in the UK. So there's, you know, the, there's a whole ecosystem of women who are very vocally talking about gender ideology and, you know, radical feminists uh, or even just unradical regular feminists, Julie Bindle and Kathleen Stock and Helen yep. Joyce and Louise Perry and J.K. Rowling, obviously. That's not your scene, but I wonder if you've had any interaction with that crowd or or if you have any thoughts about the way they're going about their gender critical stance. Well, I have met a couple of those people. Uh, I've been to one event that was full of so-called TERFs, and it was interesting. It was a bigger and more rabid group than I realized. And I don't mean rabid in a bad way. I, yeah. Uh, but, you know, full of energy and passion and conviction. And uh, and that was nice. I, I, I didn't feel inclined to make them my people, but I was glad they were out there. Uh, I think they're fighting an important fight. I join in once in a while in in text. Mm-hmm. This is one arena in which women are actually distinguishing themselves. You know, this is women being brave and aggressive. Yeah. And willing willing to fight for what they believe in. So I you know, by and large, I'm I'm admirers of them, and uh, I mean, my my opposition to I guess what we're now calling radical trans activism is on a slightly different level than uh, the threat to women only spaces. Yeah, see, that's the thing is I support all of those. Women, I think Helen Joyce is brilliant. Many of them are, most of them are, but her, she in particular is incredibly impressive. I sometimes feel a little alienated from from the kind of victim survivor locus of of energy. Like J.K. Rowling, she approaches all of this from a place of having an a, extremely abusive marriage and being very concerned about women's safety. In yeah, I found that. I found that a little disappointing. Yeah, I don't know what to do with it because I think it's really necessary. And if that's where they're starting from, great. But I think it it tends to, uh, you lose some folks along the way. I know a lot of women who I think would otherwise be like fully on board, but they're kind of just... They're they're hearing that kind of stuff and thinking like, oh wait, what what happened to all the like female agency that we were talking about around Me Too and and not not being a victim and not being threatened by men all the time. I mean, I'm being very reductive as I describe this, but that sometimes worries me a little bit. That that's the starting point. I'm happy for them to fight this on that level, but I'm much more disturbed. I'm more deeply disturbed than that. Yeah. Even if it were finally sorted out that you'd get the the boys out of the girls' locker room, et cetera, I'd still have a big problem with this 
movement, which, as far as I can tell, continues to gather steam. I find it civilizationally disturbing. Yeah, existentially. Right. It's what is wrong with a society that is using its medical resources to cut off women's breasts and make artificial holes between the legs of boys and actually has lost track of what sex is and is mutilating children or anybody for that matter. It doesn't have to be children and making, but especially the the children, they'll end up being infertile or impotent. They can't bear children. Who does that? I know. What society wants to do that to its young? I, and uh, as well as making them sexually, you know, incapable of satisfaction. But I just, it's so, it's so warped. Well, and it's I, so mind blowing. Yeah. I really feel like I'm in a Black Mirror episode all the time. Yeah, all the time. Like, this absolutely absurd premise that everybody is buying into, including some really smart people. And a lot of that is because smart people are conflating this with the gay rights movement. So when we talk about trans people, they think that it's the new version of gay people and how dare you not be supportive. But I'm getting, I have to say, like, I feel like I'm getting a little bit tired of excusing that kind of conflation. It's like, it's pretty clear now that there's a big difference. And I still don't understand why so many people are resistant to understanding it. They're just willfully confused almost. It's also as as if, oh, now that we have gay marriage, we needed a new victim group and, and we're busy, we're, we're busy creating it from nothing. It used to be that practically nobody fell into this category. And now we're generating the victim class to fill the category. Yeah. This is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Do you feel that because you don't have children, you're more able to speak out? You know, so you and I have talked about this. You were you wrote an essay from my anthology about choosing not to have children. Obviously, this has been something you've talked about a lot in your work. My latest theory is that a lot of the people who are are not thinking very critically about the gender stuff have like college age or young adult, you know, early to mid 20s kids and these are baby boomers, young baby boomers, older gen Xers and they're taking all their cues from their kids. And so those of us who don't have that, we don't have that influence uh, and we also don't run the risk of alienating anybody if we speak out, anybody close to us anyway. Yeah, I think that's well observed. I've noticed the children of my friends, if this stuff comes, if anything to do with transgenderism comes up, it's an absolute red button. I mean, the we're not necessarily talking about children, children. As you said, the, often people in their 20s. But the the moral indignation is off the charts. It seems to be what a whole generation, if not coming up on two, but a whole generation has embraced as their special cause and their special understanding of the importance of these special people and the way that we have to 
it seems to be generation defining. Right. And I also think a lot about how there's going to be a huge cohort of people who have medically transitioned and had surgery and there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. There's no going back in, in some cases anyway. And so I think when like a lot of parents say, why are you talking about this stuff? I'm trying to, it's, it's hard enough raising a trans kid. We're up against so much. Part of what they're saying is that it's hard dealing with the decision that they've made. You have to live with your decision for the rest of your life. And if you were to entertain regret, you would literally drive yourself insane. Also, some of these parents are culpable. That's what I'm saying. The parents, also the parents, like you've let that happen on your watch. That's right. Of course, you're going to do anything you can to reframe your reality in such a way that aligns with your decision, that affirms your choice. It's, It's human nature. I don't blame them actually. Well, especially since, uh, as you know, it's it, a lot of the stuff is irrevocable. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And in, in most cases, it, it's not making anybody better. If you've got a kid who's got some serious problems, I'm convinced an awful lot of the people, who the kids who fall prey to this ideology, well, they still have the serious problem. And that, that's what's so tempting about this movement is it seems to offer an answer to all your problems that, but then, then, then it doesn't. I mean, the suicide rate is still, it doesn't come down once you transition. Right. Well, and they would say that's because there's so much violence against trans people. There isn't. Right. (laughs) That's the other myth. Unfortunately. There really isn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's violence against Sex workers, largely black trans women. All the statistics are bulked up because of Brazil. Oh, wait, say, tell me about that. Internationally, well, that's where almost all the attacks on, and it, it is, it's a, it's, let's see, trans, trans women. Trans women would be a natal male. Identifying right. as female. You know, it's all doing that constant instinctive reversal. And right. it takes a little while. Um, but yes, uh, there, they, there is a lot of hostility in Brazil towards these people. And that's where almost all the assaults take place. Really? So you throw that into the mix and it looks as if there's a real problem. You take Brazil out and there isn't. I wonder, too, if you have thoughts about the role of parents who... There's, I think that there's a subset where the parents are getting a lot of attention and praise for having a trans kid and supporting them. And I feel like I see almost the parents pushing the kid into it sometimes. Well, it's much cooler to have a trans kid than to have a gay kid. Yeah. Right. And that's where and a, a lot, lot of these of... parents are homophobic, actually, yeah. ironically. Yeah. Yeah. It is no longer hip to be gay. It used to be. Not anymore. It's it's a little passe, and all of this stuff being a matter of fashion is ludicrous. But it is a matter of fashion. I recently participated in a Philip Roth festival, believe it or not, 
Uh, this was in Newark, and uh, it was uh, to celebrate Philip Roth's 90th birthday, what would have been his 90th birthday. A lot of people expressed surprise that this was even taking place. Uh, Philip Roth, I, I think he's he's not he's certainly not canceled, but I think he's been problematized to a point where it's a lot of young people would just refuse to read him on principle. I don't think uh, I don't think they are lost. Yeah, I know. Tell me about it. I don't think many professors uh, bother assigning those books anymore. Philip Roth is one of my absolute literary heroes. Uh, and I ended up on a panel talking about the human stain and entertaining this question of whether the human stain would ever be written or published today. It only had women on the panel. There were four of us, five of us, I think. Why do you think they were all women? Because I think a lot of men did not want to uh, be on the panel. They didn't even want to be having the conversation in public. <laughs> well, it's not only women who are cowards then. Oh, well, I'm not saying that the, well, I'm saying that the women are the ones that are actively driving cancel culture. Men are absolutely cowards, but I, I but from a self-preservation standpoint, yeah. I mean, oh, men are more, cow men are more afraid to speak out than women because I think they actually they have more to lose. I mean, at least we can say, oh, we're women. We have a little bit, we have a tiny, teeny, tiny, uh, you know, privilege point. Right. I, but that may be a convenience, but that's never the basis on which I want anyone to pay. No, I know. Of course, I play it very, very judiciously. But, you know, I obviously, if Philip Roth himself handed in the manuscript for the human stain, I assume it would be, it would be published if a young person starting out named Philip Roth handed it in? I think the answer would be no. But you're still managing to write novels that don't pull any punches, that are not nice. Uh, do you have trouble getting them published? Do you have to endure sensitivity readers or any conversations about the sensitivity readers? I don't have trouble getting them published because I've stuck with the same publisher. But they tolerate you. But I mean, that they do tolerate. That doesn't me. mean that doesn't mean that much, though. I mean, easily someone someone could say, "Oh, we got a new editor. We got a new, you know, staff here. We got a new outlook." Sorry. Well, my publisher has been more open than most of the big ones to publishing a wider selection of viewpoints. They've been open to publishing more conservative writers. I was advised by my agent recently that if I wanted to move publishers, I would probably have a hard time. Wow. Right? So that's what I mean, is I haven't really tested the waters. Uh, it would be interesting and illuminating to go through that exercise and see what kind of a reaction I got from publishers who don't have the reputation for being uh, interested in diversity aside from the conventional kind. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly I've never been subjected to sensitivity readers and no one at HarperCollins has been stupid enough to suggest it. <laughs> that would be kind of funny, actually. It would be kind of funny. And again, you know, it would be interesting to see what a sensitivity reader did to one of my books. One of the things that writers don't, don't understand or don't get told at the outset enough is that you don't actually have to do what these people tell you to. Right. Um, and when you realize that you are wearing Dorothy's shoes, I think it's more entertaining than painful. 
<laughs> then you just ignore everything they said. I mean, the, the publishers themselves are often going through the exercise out of self-protection. Yes, it's a cover your ass kind right? of procedure. So they can l- say later, well, you know, that book got a lot of stick on social media. So, well, that's because they didn't, the author didn't take the advice of the so- sensitivity re- readers that we we hired for her. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it covers their ass. So what was it like putting together Abominations? What was it like to revisit this stuff and talk about it with a new editor? Well, I find the whole thing fairly painful just because my idea of a good time is not sitting around re- rereading my old work. Yeah, this is why I keep avoiding this. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it, and also the amount of material was so copious uh, that I found it depressing. I couldn't believe how much of my life I have spent writing nonfiction. And, you know, a lot of it is opinions, opinion writing. And I didn't know I even had that many opinions. It made me wonder whether, whether going through my hard drive showed that my priorities were off, that I, I wrote too much of this stuff. Well, it's hard to avoid. I'm torn because I have so much stuff just over the years and years, even over just the last four years. And I think some of it is pretty good. And it wasn't, in some cases, widely read. It was paywalled or whatever. Uh And I want to get it out there. Like I want it to be accessible to people and remembered. But it's also extremely sobering to just think, wow, I had this, you know, for the week it took me to write this piece. I felt very strongly about this idea and I have since have had no, no memory of it whatsoever. <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's interesting to encounter stuff that you don't remember writing at all. Totally. Right. right? Really um, weird. Yeah. I did finally get to the point where I, I thought, okay, I, I have a contract for this. I agreed to do it. So I'm going to make it as good as possible. And I shaped it into something that is, better than bearable to read. It's not all anti-woke stuff. I tried to keep it that to a single section. I think there is a gradual progression through the collection, which is hard to quite put your finger on, but it does, you know, it feels like a unified sensibility. It is not all political. Some of it is funny. Some of it's very personal. And as much as reading one of my novels, I think that if you read that collection, you'd have a pretty good sense of who I am. That was hard to put together. It was a lot more demanding than I expected. But I, you know, I I find myself in turn quite touched when someone says they I got, got an email from a reader who said that she read the eulogy I gave my older brother. Yeah. And she was on the tube and she burst out in tears on the train. And I find that moving partly because I, I'm so impressed that someone is capable of reading about someone else's brother 
who died, someone they've never met, have no reason to care about, and yet extended themselves emotionally to understand what it was like to lose that person. I, I actually think that's a tribute to the reader. As much. Well, I thought that piece was extraordinary, and I was going to ask why you included it. I mean, I can see why you included it, but it's a surprising addition to the collection. Well, for one thing, it's, a back, it's the background behind uh, my uh, novel, Big Brother. And, and in some ways that book makes it, it's like, uh, it's like an annotated, it's like an annotated edition of my books you get a lot of the real-life feeders of some of the novels. So if, I think it makes a good companion uh, to the fiction. Yeah. And if, if you like the fiction, you'll probably like the collection. And there, there's a lot of storytelling in it. It's not just, oh, you know, I, I don't like Joe Biden. <laughs> Right. Yes. Um, Orange man, bad. None of that. Yeah. 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 Well, um, I was really struck by it's, it's an essay. It's like a, it's like a letter to your younger self in a way. I was poor, but I was happy. And you're, you're talking to your, your past self. And to me, I read it as the kind of primer for the post-birthday world. Am I getting that right? Um, in some ways, yeah. Sort of alternative life. I mean, the post-birthday world is a novel. It's a sliding doors kind of effect, and it's, it's Although really Although this wonderful. is a little different because, mm-hmm. I mean, I, this is not just me. I'm sure lots of people wish they could whisper in the ear of their younger selves. Oh, yeah. Right? If only you knew this. If you knew this was going to happen. And the, the essay you're thinking of is expressly about a period of my professional life that was going very badly indeed. Uh, I was only being published in the UK. I'd lost my American publisher. Was you know my literary reputation was almost non-existent, and my future as a novelist was in doubt. I was living in Belfast, of all places. And I thought I was miserable. But looking back on it now, I realize I wasn't. Ah. That wasn't real misery. I was in midlife. I was really stuck into my life. And part of that was suffering. But I, was, I had fallen in, properly in love for the first time. By the way, that means that they love you back. <laughs> yeah, what does properly mean? <laughs> That's what properly means. Okay. Right? Not um, in love with a proper, with an appropriate person. That's a, that's different. No, no. Appropriate in this case is loves you back. Uh-huh. I was living in an interesting place. I was writing books that, you know, my, my output was good. I was writing books that I was deeply involved with. I had a sense of mission, even though I was often frustrated. And every time I came up with another idea for a book, then I had a new mission. And those were good days. 
You know, I was not actually unhappy. I was, I was exerting myself and fighting the good fight and doing what, what I always said I wanted to do for a living, even though it turned out to be a lot harder than I expected. Uh, that is good life. That is, that is happiness is, I mean, I do, there's a separate essay in the collection about what I think is a misunderstanding about what happiness is, which we tend to think of as some kind of desert island where you're Mm -hmm. fiddling your toes in warm water and watching the birds fly off in the horizon and just sitting there. Happiness is not a static state. No. It's, it's, you're usually happy when you're thinking about something else other than being happy. Yeah, I think by, it's an by, by definition. It's, it's, yeah. it's a trajectory. It is, it is a sense of purpose. It is yeah. doing something. That is happiness. You say to your younger self, you're far less miserable than you think. Well, well, Lionel, thank you as always for coming on. I love talking with you and we could go on and on, but I want to move on to uh, to the bonus. But congratulations on Abominations. It's a really, it's a great read. It's, I know that that's not always true of collections, but in this case, I think it stands on its own and there's a really lovely arc and I've enjoyed revisiting a lot of the pieces and discovering new ones. So thank you so much. And I hope we'll talk again. I hope we do too. That was my conversation with Lionel Shriver. She is the author of many novels, including the best-selling We Need to Talk About Kevin. That was a movie with Tilda Swinton. Pretty good movie, too. Her most recent book is Abominations, Selected Essays from a Career of Courting Self-Destruction. She is a columnist at The Spectator, and she splits her time between London and New York. You've been listening to the Unspeakable Podcast. You know what to do. If you want to hear bonus content, including bonus content from this conversation with Lionel about end-of-life stuff, <laughs> uh, go to the Substack, megandom.substack.com. Become a paying subscriber. It really helps me out. If you don't want to pay, you can become. Uh, you can just leave a rating or a review. That actually helps a lot, especially if it's positive, wherever you get your podcasts. And obviously, the unspeakeasy. You've heard me talk enough about. Okay, I will be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Mm-hmm.